I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoy listening to the LRB podcast, then you'll probably enjoy reading the LRB. You can subscribe to the LRB from just £1 per issue. To find out more, go to lrb.me forward slash listen. That's lrb.me forward slash listen. Or click on the link in the description below this episode. Hello and welcome to the LRB podcast. I'm Adam Schatz and my guest today is Raphael Branche, a historian at the University of Paris. Raphael is the author of several books, including Torture and the French Army during the Algerian War, a path-breaking study published in 2002. Raphael's latest book, which I've reviewed in the current edition of the London Review of Books, is called Daddy, What Did You Do in Algeria? It was reviewed widely and admiringly in France. It's a major study of the experiences of French conscripts in Algeria, not only what they saw and did, but more importantly, how they did and didn't talk about it, both during the war and after. It's a book about memory and transmission and about silence, denial, and their legacy. So it's relevant not just to the study of the war itself, but to our understanding of France today. So thank you, Raphael, uh, for joining us on the LRB podcast. Thank you for having me. Uh, Raphael, when we first met nearly 20 years ago, you just published Torture in the Army uh, during the Algerian War. And this was at a time of intensifying interest around torture and repression during the war. You might even say it's rediscovery since people like Pierre Vidal-Naquet and Henri Allègue had exposed it uh, during the war. Around the same time, uh, General Paul Osares had boasted of his involvement uh, in murdering Ali Boumengel and Larbi Ben-Midi, uh, FLN activists, uh, during the Battle of Algiers. And Louisette Iguilariz, an FLN fighter, had come forward with a very moving testimony of being tortured and then rescued by a French doctor. So your book and the, the works of other historians like uh, Sylvie Tenot provided essential documentation of the French state's reaction to the uprising in Algeria and helped to shatter the silence about the war. But the book you've just written has a very different focus. Um, indeed, it's much more about the silence around the war and how it was produced within French families and, of course, also by the state. Can you talk a little bit about how you arrived at this subject? Well, um, interestingly, you started by my first book because there is a link between the two. And um, I also started the last book by referring to this first work because I met the veterans of the Algerian war uh, for my work on torture and illegal violence during the war. And uh, it's a kind of, I don't know, personal process there that... Um, year after year, I became aware of the fact that interviewing veterans was not enough, so to speak, to understand their words. I need to know more about their, you know, their, their background, their family background, their many things, and, and particularly the, the importance of 
their relatives and the way they were able to talk and to have their their their, their kids and their wives especially imagine the life they had in Algeria. So it was some sort of personal process and then it became a sort of scientific uh, question for me. Right, personal personal in the sense that I think that after your your book was published some of the veterans uh, and their family members uh, actually contacted you, including some mm-hmm. who had been very uncomfortable about talking to you when you researched your first book. Actually, it started before the book because it started for the book because I was looking for people wanting to speak about torture in in late 90s. It was just before, you know, the sort of huge debate that, you know, you mentioned um, at, at the beginning of, of our talk. and. Uh, at that time, in, in the late 90s, nobody really speaks about, you know, violence in the Algerian war at that time in particular. Uh, and uh, when I, I came to, you know, veterans asking for their uh, testimonies, um, actually they were, they were okay. I mean, they wanted to speak. I mean, I had just one out of 40 that was not willing to speak about what I called um, illegal violence. So at that time, I experienced the way that you know they were really happy to speak, so to speak, or eager to speak because they were in their you know early sixties, uh, beginning to start a new life as young uh, retired um, people. So I had this experience that they, they had, well, they wanted to speak to me, or they were okay to speak to me, and it was. A contrast with the fact that you know most people said to me, uh, "My father, he doesn't want to speak," or "My brother, he never spoke about that," or "Or he's always silent, or he's keeping silent when you ask him, he doesn't want to answer." And you know, I had my own experience that they were okay, and they, well, even to speak about rape, about well, rape it was not so easy actually, but uh, to speak about torture was, you know possible with me, mm. but not with their relatives. Well, you know, I, I want to talk to you about the, tra- the question of transmission, of course, and what mm. they did and didn't say uh, to their relatives. But first, I want to talk to you a bit about, about the, the appelé, the, the, you know, yep, the, the, the conscripts, conscripts because the, the impression one gets is that this really was not a rebellious generation, indeed, quite the contrary. This, in fact, you cite a survey um, I think it was conducted by the sociologist Henri Lefebvre that most of them thought their lives would pretty be, would be pretty much the same yeah. as their parents' lives. Yeah. yeah, I find that fascinating. And yeah, definitely we're not a, in some sort of rebel generation at all compared to their younger brother and sisters that for some of them, you know, were activists in, in 68, uh, but definitely no, they were not. You know the movement I'm I'm doing in the book is not to consider the conscripts as of their twenties. You know they are twenty, and then they go to war, and then they they experience a war, and then they are uh, coming home, and and they have difficulties to speak, or and so on and so forth. What I did in the book is to start in the thirties to have them as children and to study their childhood to understand how they. They experience the world and, uh, you know, the sort of the way of imagining their future. They, really, they, they, they grew up in the shadow of war, so to speak. You know, the Second, the second World War was just at, 
in the offing and, and, and the First World War was just everywhere in France, you know, and with all these little villages with this, you know, uh, war memorials and, and, and all that. And, uh, and I had the sense that, you know, that the weight of the two world wars were understudied, you know, uh, by, by historians and, and they were not considered as children of war. But they are children of war, suddenly. Uh, right, and they—I mean, they were. I mean, if there was one thing they were familiar with, it was—it was war, yeah. both the first and the second world war. Um, there, the lesson they drew from their experiences was that men went to war at some point. Definitely. So the and and so very few of them put up any resistance to the idea of going to Algeria, and of course, in fact, they'd been told that this wasn't a war. It was just an operation to maintain order. Algeria was France. The uh, interior minister at the time, François Mitterrand, said that, uh, you know, Algeria is France and, and uh, you know, it's going to stay that way. So, you know, what did the conscripts think they were getting into when they went to Algeria, right? For many of them, it was their first time abroad. What did they think they were going to be doing there? Well, many, many things in your questions. But the thing is, Yes, men were supposed to go to war, but they were not going to war. They were going to do their, you know, military duty as conscripts. And so they were sent to Algeria, but Algeria was France. You know, it was really France. It was part of France, so to speak, in an administrative way, of course. They were not sent overseas. It was not Indochina or Africa. It was France, and they had to do their duty. You know, in reality, it was not the fact. Actually, what what they what they discovered in Algeria was colonialism, poverty. I think they also discovered the the amount of lies, you know, um, because they were told that Algeria was France, but it was not. Definitely not. I mean, people were not able to understand French. Children, uh, you know, walk in the street without shoes, and and you know, the misery was was everywhere, and it was a huge huge shock for. You know, many many conscripts, uh, as you can uh, you can read in the in the letters. So they they were not aware of colonialism, you know, the reality of it, but and they were not aware that they had to, you know, they will be in danger, and their family was not aware. Were not aware as well. You know, they were not facing war. They were just facing eventually rebellion. You know, some sort of light right, danger, right? Because the rebels, the rebels were called hors la loi, outlaws. They, they were called even outlaws, yes. And it was supposed to be, you know, maintenance of order operations. So something, yes, not without danger, but not really a war. Are you quote actually a saying that it's it was more dangerous to drive from Paris yeah. to the south of France than to go to Algeria, which is quite striking. I I, I was also taken by this um, contrast between the first letters that they wrote home where they sent the often on these picturesque 19th century postcards of colonial Algeria and they the conscripts talk about you know the 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 incredible blue sky and the bay of algiers yeah. and uh, and then they start to write about what they see and the poverty and the misery and and you really get a sense of um of their shock but what are they telling their loved ones Back home in, in Algeria, when they um, they're in, in France, rather, when they start to, to to write, what are they telling them? Because I I get the sense that even during the war, 
they were already creating these, what you call structures of silence. They were already creating these no-go zones. I mean, there were exceptions, of course. There were some people who were quite explicit about what they saw. But Mm -hmm. on the whole, it seems they were already creating this space of secrecy. Yeah, definitely. You know, I wanted to go back to these first narratives because I think one of the key elements of the silence is really there, you know, the way they... Because they spent one or two years in Algeria. And, you ha- well, people have to remember that they, they had no opportunity to come back to France or to talk to their relatives. So the, the importance of what, what they wrote is really big. I mean, it's, it's much bigger than, of course, now uh, any letter uh, could or would be. They weren't dashing off emails and, and texts. <laughs> no, no, no email, no, no WhatsApp, no, no, and no telephone even. So just letters. So these first words on the reality that they saw, uh, it has to do with their wish to protect their family, so not to talk about the danger they were uh, they were facing, and also it also had to do with their own possibility uh, ability to understand the situation, because they were not really you know. They didn't know nothing. They didn't know nothing about about the Algerian situation, about nationalism, about poverty. So they had also this meaning that well, you, you can have this sense of you know they are different from us. They are savages, or they don't know how to uh, to take care of their children, and and all this sort of you know colonial uh, mind, so to speak. Uh, that was also a. Uh, um, a filter, you say, a filter, um, right? A filter, a filter yeah. uh, to to understand, you know, the reality they had to 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 deal with. So this is also in their first narratives. And then when they came back, you know, they they they, they were not able to change the narrative so easily. So um, some of them were able to address issues such as violence, for example, or poverty, or or guilt, or shame, or whatever. But most of them didn't at the time of the war. And then when they came back, it was just the same. They keep on saying, you know, it was okay, no danger, it was fun, it was boring, it was, you know, but nothing of the real reality of the experience for, for many. And very, very few of them penetrated the uh, colonial facade and developed real relationships to Algerians. You talk about these Meshwif and there were there are a couple of examples of conscripts who actually developed friendships there's in fact one uh, one striking example of a frenchman who falls in love with an algerian woman who was the widow of an fln fighter Um, but but those encounters were very rare for the most part the algerians remained um, inaccessible to them yeah, but it it is not so much because of the colonial facade, it's because of the war. I mean, the war was waged against guerrilla fighters, of course, but in the end, the real enemy was not the guerrilla fighters. The, the real enemy was something quite strange because it was, it was the, the civilian population, but not as an enemy, as a target a target of a war that was something strange because it was, on the one hand, combat, and on the other hand, you know, building schools, building roads, uh, you know, uh, teaching mother how to 
to take care of their kids. So, so this right because there was this whole kind of campaign to win hearts and minds. And... Absolutely. So, so the, the the situation in which they could have you know met you know Algerians and with a possibility of becoming friends. Very limited. Was obviously. very limited. Very yeah, very yeah. limited. Uh, when you know, I did I did a questionnaire for the, the veterans, and one of my questions was, "Did you make friends?" Something like that. And what about have you stayed in contact with them or something like that? And to me, you know, I meant French friends. I mean veterans. And for some of them, they understand the, they understood the question as Algerian friends. So they answered it like impossible. Lots of you know like. Uh, exp- um, exclamation point like, like is it, it's just stupid or what that's what they <laughs> you know you decided to limit your study to the conscripts mm-hmm. now i wonder uh I, I wanted to ask you a bit more about how you made that decision because part of the the french family so to speak today is algerian french in those families you also had structures of silence as we've uh, been reminded by uh, to take one example the very compelling recent documentary on the recruitment camps by Dorothée Miriam Kalu, which I'm, I'm sure you've seen. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering, was this partly a matter of discretion or of pudeur, a kind of a feeling that this is really a subject for a French historian of Algerian roots to write? I and mean, what were the what was your what was the reason you limited the study to the conscripts themselves, since these structures of silence are shared by many? Well, or many others, rather. <laughs> too, maybe too vast a subject. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, really, I didn't even envisage another, you know, way of, you know, dealing with the subject of silence. Because, of course, you have silence all over society and, and, and in many milieu. But, you know, the specificities of, of conscripts are real. I mean, it's different from professional soldiers. It's different from harkies. It's different, you know, from what you mentioned, the, the, the French that had to come to France at the end of the Algerian war. But uh, no, it's really different because you have, well, yes. So I find it, you know, enough. So there's... Exactly. <laughs> Sorry. No, that, that makes sense. You know, about, about a decade ago, Laurent Mauvignier, a, a French writer, published a, a remarkable novel mm-hmm. called Des Hommes. Uh, some men. Uh, it was translated into English as The Wound. Mm-hmm. Now, I was reminded of the novel at several points while while reading your book. Um, you, in fact, mentioned uh, the novel. One of your subjects, a socialist conscript named uh, Jacques Arep, uh, who went on to become an activist against the war, wrote in a letter after witnessing an atrocity by his fellow soldiers, these are not men, ce ne sont pas des hommes. And that, that of course, reminded me of, of the Mauvignier novel. Now, in that novel, there are several, there, there's a scene where um, one of the characters is witnessing an atrocity in a village, and his mind wanders to the Nazi massacre in the French town of Ouradour-sur-Glane. Now, when I read that book, I thought, really? Uh, is this soldier thinking about Ouradour while he's in Algeria? It seemed a little bit forced to me. Mm-hmm. But but now that I've read your book, it's clear to me that it's not it was not a forced moment at all because a number of the soldiers you write about drew this analogy, talked about Uradur. Why why Uradur? What what gave that such resonance? Yeah, 
one has, has to remember that when the war broke out in 1954, I mean, it was nine years after the end of Second World War. So it was, in, in, you know, 10 years after Oradour. So really nothing, you know. And, and this, these guys, they had the news of Oradour had a huge impact, uh, you know, at, at, at the moment in, in during the liberation of France because it was a massacre of a whole village. And you, whereas you have many cases uh, of massacre in Poland and Eastern Europe, it's it's very rare in France. So it really had a huge impact at that time. But you also had to remember that in 1953, there was a trial in France, which also had a huge impact because... Uh, who was uh, sent uh, to trial? It was the man who had participated in in this crime, uh, French and German, because part of the Oradour SS uh, division were composed by uh, Alsatian soldiers. Were these these were the were these the milices or were they? No, no, no. It was SS regiment, but you had this the malgré nous, so French from Alsace, but incorporated into the Reich as as German. So you had this sort of, it was also a French story, this Oradour Nazi massacre. So it was, it had a huge impact in 1953, which is just one year, you know, before, and the men were, were convicted and then you had an amnesty. So, because, you know, this, you have the Alsace against Limousin and, and all this. And the other thing is that when they arrived in Algeria, and I mean, certainly, you know, the vast majority of them, they had this feeling that they were the soldiers occupying a land and you had the, 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 the civilians and especially the children. And, and they speak very much about the children because, I mean, this children is, is of course, it's innocence and, and it's all that. But they were also children themselves during the war and they had experienced gentle Nazi or German soldiers, you know, occupying France and and. This strange feeling to be on the wrong side of history was very strong and and very uncomfortable for them. So, and at the same time, the 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 FLN was modeling itself on the wartime Maquis, uh, right? Yeah, definitely. And the FLN was using it. I mean, you know, politically using it because they had um, that showed the reference to the GPRF. You know, they, they, they labeled their own government as GPRA, you know, on, you know, really echoing uh, De Gaulle's uh, GPRF. The, the, uh, the, you're talking about the, um, the, provisory... the Algerian government, the, the, the government in exile. Absolutely. Yes. You know, they did the same, they really use the same label as De Gaulle had in, in 1944 in Algiers. So you know this reference is everywhere for for you know for all the participants, all the actors of the war. The Oradour is something special because it's a crime, it's it's a war crime, and it's you know it's it's some sort of symbol of Nazism in France uh, for its worst aspects. And, and and of course you know the uh, the soldiers who offer the most eloquent testimony about and and tend to make this allusion to the occupation in France mm-hmm. generally come from, from left-wing backgrounds, either socialist or communist, um, or appear to, no, I mean, no, uh, I'm not so sure. you, you quote from yeah. both Jacques Anrep and also this young communist named Marcel, uh, Yanelli. And, um, 
you know, as you note early in the book, the, the Communist Party of France uh, didn't discourage uh, soldiers from going to Algeria. They thought that the soldiers should go there and campaign for peace, not that they should resist the war, Absolutely. which is remarkable too. Absolutely. The French Communist Party has a very, um, has a responsibility, I mean, for, for, for this uh, young boys that, you know, were really willing to do something for the Algerian people. And they were told just to go and try to do it, you know, in the middle of, you know, the rank and files. And it was something like, well, just impossible to do, actually. And they realized they couldn't. No, they couldn't. And so they their letters expressed such frustration and despair. Yeah, yeah, that's really... I mean, when you were really a militant, as uh, Marcel Yanelli is, and uh, I had the chance to be able to read his, you know, his diaries and uh, his letters, and, and he's really, you know, he's, he's fighting against himself. He's really... He's shameful. He's, he's, he's really unhappy because... He, He's not succeeding in his, you know, in his work, in his job as a good communist that <laughs> should be to be able to convince people not to do the revolution or, or to go on strike, but just to just to respect human beings. Because actually what he's really trying to 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 do is to speak and to talk about, you know, respecting civilians, respecting prisoners. I just want to mention the fact that it's not only, you know, leftist soldiers or, or soldiers with, you know... Progressive backgrounds. Yeah, this background because, well, two things. I mean, they were very young. At the age of 20, you, can, you cannot vote. And they were not very, you know, politicized. Mm. I mean, you mentioned the, the Lefebvre sondage, you know, how they envisaged their, their, you know, their future... And they they couldn't imagine something else than their parents' life, and it's it's some it's also the case as as far as politics is concerned. So mm. you know, militants are a minority, obviously. And the other thing is, uh, as far as uh, human human rights are concerned, to well, it's a way of of telling it. It's that you also had people with Christian backgrounds very upset by, uh, you know, violence committed in Algeria and uh, at least violence against uh, civilians or a massacre of villages. And you also had this part of, you know, uh, the, the conscript that were eager to compare uh, to uh, Nazi occupation in France and, and very, very uh, um, uncomfortable about this uh, echo. In the 70s, uh, France was swept by a wave of uh, remembrance of Vichy, of, 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 of the Holocaust, of France's complicity. This was prompted by the publication of Robert Paxton's mm. great book on Vichy and also by the Old Fool's film, um, The Sorrow and the Pity of the Chagrin de la Pitié. Mm -hmm. Now, it's at precisely this time that the French seem to be doing everything in their power to forget Algeria, to just put it behind them, to put it out of their minds. How is it that the forgetting of Algeria coincides with the reckoning with the Holocaust? Oh, huh. it's kind of a remark. It just seems to me rather remarkable that you could have this forgetting and this remembering going on at once. I'm not a specialist of the Holocaust memory, but you know that, you know, this turning point of 1971 with the Chagrin et la Pitié is also a turning point from the Algerian memory point of view, because you have in 1972... 1971, 1972, you have a three or, yeah, I think two or, no, three books 
that were issued at the same time on on the Battle of Algiers and on torture. And that really started some sort of public debate about... Didn't, didn't Jacques Massu publish a book in 1972? Absolutely. Jacques Massu, La Vraie Bataille d'Alger, and General de la Bollardière, Battle of Algiers, Battle of Men, and... Uh, and Pierre Vidal-Naquet had his book published and translated into French. Torture in the Republic. Mm -hmm. So you had this sort of debate right at the same time. And then it faded away. And then it, it disappeared. But I, I, I don't know if you have, well, if there is a link, you know, because certainly there is. But I, I haven't, mm. you know, been too much into it. On the contrary, at the end of the 90s, you also find a link between the Vichy uh, memory and the Algerian war. During the, during, that's during the Papon trial. It's the Papon trial that is really, to, to my mind, it's, it's really the turning point where, you know, uh, the obsession of the Vichy uh, past give way, say give way or... Gives way. Gives away. And, and, and then the Algerian war came to the front and, and started being what it is until today, which is the huge, the massive, supposedly, problem. Right, because this is at a moment when Maurice Papon is on trial yep. uh, for, uh, for crimes committed during the, occupation, during the occupation. And at the same time, we're reminded that Papon... After the war, not only became uh, involved in the Algerian war, right? He was um, posted there. Yeah, he was the head of of Constantine region at the beginning right. of the war, and then the head of Paris prefect. But then he became the the Paris prefect and presided over the October 17, 1961 massacre of Algerian demonstrators. Yeah, definitely. This, uh, you know, the trial was restricted to the Second World War and the complicity of, you know, uh, crime against humanity, but. You know, at the at the beginning of the process of the of the beginning of the trial, this you have this, you know, um, mention of his responsibility that couldn't be addressed in a, in the judicial arena, thanks to the amnesty, thanks to, to lots of things. But yes, it was mentioned, and it it all it really you know went with the fact that you know public memory was going elsewhere and interested more and more on the Algerian past. Now, when, when the conscripts returned, uh, not many people wanted to hear what they'd seen. One of your uh, subjects, a man named Michel uh, Berthélemy, um, a conscript, had accidentally killed a boy mm -hmm. from a balcony. And he's haunted by this, but no one wants to listen to him when he comes back. And you, you get the sense that the, that the conscripts felt, um, they felt ashamed that after all, they had been defeated. Algeria was lost. And to make things worse, they were also, in popular culture, stereotyped as these rednecks, as these drunks who were mm. haunted by the past. And I'm thinking particularly of the, 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 the so-called boeuf, mm -hmm. this uh, caricature by the, by the late cartoonist uh, Cabu and uh, Charlie Hebdo. Um, can you talk a little bit about what that caricature signified? Well... Definitely, there is some sort of popular character. I mean, the, the veteran of, of the French um, war in Algeria, but definitely very different from what you have in the States, for example. It's, it's something that, is, that still has to be studied, actually. I mean, the, the, you know, the, the presence of these characters in literature and, and film, but the both, the um, Cabu's both, is, also has to do with anti-militarism you know uh, you mentioned Charlie Hebdo and you know this you know one of their 
ligne éditoriale, c'est... Um, editorial line. <laughs> the yeah. editorial line was really about, you know, against the army as a whole. Sure, so, sure. So the both is, is this sort of drunk man, fat man, um, sexist, and uh, really a caricature. But indeed, it's, it's something that in a way silenced the, the conscript because they felt they, they were different uh, from this caricature. And it was among many other things, I mean, you know, images that really silenced them because they, they felt at least indifference from their relatives or from the society about their experience and refusal to hear about the specificities of what they had experienced there. So uh, the both was more like a sort of a repoussoir, you know, something you, you really don't want to be mm -hmm. associated with. And the problem is you have no positive image of, you know, anybody that has been fighting in Algeria. So you just have French officers like General Massu. You have professional officers, you know, like uh, General Bijar. Or, yeah, you have some positive images, but they were not conscripts. So for the conscripts, it was just like a nowhere And, and and they were nowhere. So people were expecting them to go back to their normal life and forget about the war. And they were told that, after all, you know, war is, is the Battle of Verdun. Yeah. That really wasn't Definitely. even a war. And, and you shouldn't complain. You should just forget what you saw. I mean, you, yeah. and you talk about uh, in your book about how some of the, uh, uh, the conscripts, when they came home, went to great efforts to just forget the war. Um, you you, you mentioned uh, there's a, a, an anecdote about the... Uh, the great screenwriter, Jean-Claude Carrière, mm -hmm. co collaborator yes. of uh, mm -hmm. Buñuel, a great screenwriter who went to one of the bridges in, in, in Paris with his with his wife, I believe, mm -hmm. and tossed out all their letters. Yeah. Shame you didn't have those letters yeah. to, to read. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I'm sure they would have been very good. Yeah, well, not, I'm not, actually, I'm not so sure. You know, when you read, you know, a, a couple uh, correspondence, it's just love and love and love and... <laughs> <laughs> and I miss you, and I, and I love you, and it's you know, but maybe, maybe I know. Now, now the war had these lasting psychological effects on the conscripts, and and uh, you know much of the the literature and the film of the, of the latter part of the war, but but also the period just after the war uh, depicts that trauma. And I'm thinking of uh, things like uh, Alain Rene's film Muriel or the the Tom Tour, which is very. Mm -hmm. A powerful reflection on war trauma, um, or Daniel Antelm's uh, novel La Permission, mm -hmm. and yet few in the medical establishment were willing to consider that the war, which, as you said, wasn't a war, uh, had any such effect. But then you you write about these two remarkable men. One is um, Jacques Arep, we've mm -hmm. mentioned, and the other is Bernard Sieg. Can mm -hmm. you can you talk a bit about what they how they came to see this war as having uh, a profound Uh, kind of traumatic effect on the conscripts. Yeah. One of them, Jacques Henrep, was a conscript. And the other is a deserter. Uh, yeah. And the other is a deserter. So that makes a big difference. Mm. And Jacques Henrep finally decided to quit uh, the, you know, the job his father and mother wanted him to, to do. And he started a career as a psychiatric uh, nurse. In the in the late sixties, and then he, and then he wrote about uh, traumatic and and especially on he wrote on on torture on the effects on on of torture on on victims, and uh, as a veteran, he wrote several texts on this experience because at the time of the war, he was one of the rare 
whistleblowers, you know, trying to give information to the press or at least to the militant press to alert and 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 denounce i mean the the reality of what french army was doing in algeria so that's part of jacques anrep's involvement in denouncing the crimes uh, from the war until until today actually and what i found out because i i knew him from you know uh, a long time but what i discovered was his his involvement in in the clandestine movement against the OAS. The, the, or the, organiz- the secret army organization yeah, the, which the, tried the, to... Some sort of fascist organization against mm-hmm. uh, the Golis regime uh, when he came back uh, in, I can't remember, 1961 or 1960. The situation of uh, Bernard Sig is quite different. And as a psychiatrist, because he was he a was doctor at the time, and... Uh, as a psychiatrist, he was really aware of of the psychiatric wounds and the effects of the war on, you know, several people. He had to, well, he met, you know, in Morocco because he was he was he was at a a, a military hospital in Morocco and he was, he was seeing in soldiers. Yeah, absolutely. He was seeing soldiers who'd fought in Algeria. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, and isn't that what isn't that what led him to desert? In fact, it's not really clear actually. Uh, when you ask him, he's part of this. As we mentioned before, you know, the communist uh, people or at least, you know, people from that sort of that kind of um, political milieu. Uh, milieu that was he was not really willing to go, but he didn't know what to do. And finally, he decided not to because he was, you know, not happy with what he, he heard of. That's basically what I know from what he told me. But then he forgot about it. And he went to the States. He, you know, he did several things. He read, of course, about traumatic disorder and, and all that. And he was asked by um, the president of one of the veteran association in France, a communist one, to, you know, just to think about, you know, the situation of French veterans in, in, in the 80s. So he was the only one, actually, to really try to document the reality of what we can call traumatism, but it really had no name at that time regarding this these people. So he was the first, and he published his book on on silence and how is it called Le Silence et la Névrose, I think. Well, something about silence and neuroses. Yeah. Well, so they you know where really the rare people interested in the subject and trying to document it in the you know in the 70s and 80s right and and for the sake also of public health and to provide psychiatric services to veterans who wouldn't otherwise have gotten them um, not at that time you know you had and that took a while yeah that took you know, until the you know in the 90s you had nothing really done for the for the veterans in in in, in the french that's that's totally you know nothing well Basically, you had to wait until the Gulf War to really have, uh, you know, military psychiatrists interested in the the issue of uh, of war trauma PTSD. Yeah, you know, you you, you show in the book that that as much as um, these families tried to forget Algeria, Algeria remained very much in the home. Yeah. There was this. There were there were there. You know, you talk about the the memorabilia, the the so called souvenirs. Mm-hmm. Many of them mm-hmm. were were just were stolen uh, yeah. by the soldiers from Algerian homes that they'd raided, or from FLN fighters who had been killed. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was reminded um, of Altusser's 
the concept of the the structuring absence, you know, something that isn't mentioned in a text, but is nevertheless everywhere present. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I should have used it. Yes. Well, it's, I don't know if it's structuring, you know, as such, but it's, it's present. Yes. And I also wanted to not only document the silence, but document the presence and document the way um, Algeria or, or something that is that was called Algeria and not the war, like infuse, you know, the, the families uh, through you know, recipes and, of course, um, music. And, and, all and words, words that people use. And, for example, yes, words like, you know, common words, yes. You know, another legacy of the war and, of course, of colonization, the 130 years that France was in Algeria, uh, was racism. And yeah. you... You talk about a special racism directed against Algerians, even more than against other subjects of, of the French Empire. How is this anti-Algerian racism different, in your view, from other such racisms? Actually, I don't know. It's an idea. I mean, it's even a, a notion that was first raised by Benjamin Stora. I mean, the fact that some sort of legacy is something specific towards towards men, I should say, and, and add, not women, but men of Algerian descent or North African descent in France, uh, starting with crimes, I mean, murders of, of these people in Marseille at, at the beginning of, 19, of, the, of the 70s, for example, you have, you know, specific, you know, crimes, uh, racist crimes, and going to, I mean, the issue of the Islamic veil and, and all that, and then the women came into, you know, into play. But still, I think you have something special regarding uh, male and of this way, you know. Right, the fear of the of the Algerian male. Yeah. And of course, I mean, Stora has suggested that there's a link too to the uh, emergence of the far right of the of the, the National Front, which, yeah. calls the, which is now called the Rassemblement National. Mm -hmm. Jean-Marie Le Pen was, of course, uh, a paratrooper and a torturer. I mean, yeah. Stora calls it Sudism, I think, or Southernism. Absolutely. Do you do you think that there's that even today there's such a link between uh, the memory of the Algerian War and the politics of the far right, or has that uh, diminished? No, no, that's definitely still here, and it's not only the far right; it's part of the right in in France definitely and it's not only Stora I mean it's it's the history of the far right uh, that is really linked to some sort of radicalism in Algeria at the time of of the war and that is actually being studied you know by historians I mean the the, the link I mean the people really crossing Mediterranean with these ideas that is really um bringing to uh, the far right in France something specific, uh, different from other, you know. Um, and, there's, and there's already this discourse long before uh, Renaud Camus of, of a great replacement and the yeah. fear of counter-colonization. There's the, the famous remark of de Gaulle about, about, you know, wanting to make sure... Demography. That, right, about demography. Absolutely, yeah. You, you had this, you know, the argument of, you know, figures are our worst enemies, so we have to, you know, leave them because they are too... No, they, are, they will outnumber uh, the French, the real French. Yes. And take our women and so on. Yeah. You know, you mentioned Benjamin uh, Stora, the great uh, historian of, of, of Algeria, um, who also published a book about structures of silence earlier on called uh, the La Gangrene et l'Oubli, um, in mm -hmm. some ways a kind of precursor to this this book that you've published. Now, at the request of, of President Macron, he's just filed a report on the war um, and has proposed a, 
uh, a commission of memory and truth. He's called for the French state to acknowledge, um, among other things, the murder of um, Ali Boumangel, the FLN lawyer. But at the same time, Stora has discouraged any expression of repentance. He says that it's, it's, uh, it's a trap, it's a piège of the far right. I'm wondering, have you mm-hmm. read Stora's report? And, and what do you think about the conclusions um, so far as you've studied them? Uh, yes, I, well, I read it rapidly, but um, I know, well, I spoke with him and I, I think I know what he he, he means. I say that also with all due respect. I think Stora is a is a is a brilliant and admirable man. Definitely, yeah, definitely, and 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 is definitely the the first historian who was ever able to address the issue of collective memory in France and Algeria in the same book, public memory more than family memory. But but yes, definitely in 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 the early nineties. Yeah, I I think I agree. I definitely agree with him when he when he mentioned the fact that the repentance issue is is a trap and is something you know the far right really managed to impose on you know on the public on the political agenda, which is totally absurd. I mean, it's it's uh, something the far right and not only the far right actually, you know, the right mostly and probably even more and more people are not wanting to do because repentance is something that has to do with you know, with the church, with the Christian uh, lexicon, and it also means... Uh, a formal yeah. apology. Yeah, something people don't want to hear about it. But it's also because it has been presented as a demand of the Algerian state, which is not so clear. I mean, when you look at, you know, the... the 60 years from you know of of you know French and Algerian uh, relationship it's not it has not always been you know this demand for for apologies not to mention an Algerian state which the vast majority of Algerians don't even like yeah definitely i agree <laughs> of course of course it's part of the problem i mean who are we talking to who do we want to talk to i mean this issue of reconciliation for me it's something totally vain i mean we are not you know, we are not um, crossed, you know, you know, people are, you know, we are okay. I mean, people are leaving, I mean, many, many Algerians live in France, go to France. And, and you know, I think we have nothing, no problem really as far as, as the people are concerned. And even as far as the states are concerned, when you look at, you know, the, you know, the commercial relationship, the, the strategical relationship, I mean, we are close in many ways. So this issue of, you know, War of memories? No, I don't understand it really. Now, the Algerian War ended in 1962, uh, so it will soon cease to be a living memory in France. What, in your view, are the stakes involved in France achieving this so-called reconciliation? I mean, what would it accomplish if it were even possible? What, 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 what is the meaning of this whole project, in your view? Well, I see at least two questions in your question. The one is, what could be done or would be better than what is proposed <laughs> and what is proposed um, in in his in his you know in his uh, report or book uh, Benjamin Stora has many you know pr- proposals such as you know symbolic ones interesting ones you know to to build statue or or to you know well why not I mean definitely why not. And the issue of, you know, victims for the, the nuclear uh, um, experimentation is also a very sensitive issue. And why not? And, and the other is about the archives and, 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 and this commission you mentioned. 
the problem is uh, regarding this aspect that we have no Algerian counterparts. I mean, I mean, we French historians. So you, you can always say, yes, a mixed commission would be interesting. But uh, the fact is that you already have one between French and Algerian as far as regarding the archives, and it's not working. Uh, and that's all. And from my point of view, the the real political um, way of addressing this is not so much about the Algerian war, but about the colonial past of the French in Algeria and in general. But let's talk only about the Algerian aspect. And it's something that is really about injustice, discrimination, and not addressing the, you know, the impact of this on the way we see, we French, we see the Algerian, we imagine the Algerian until today is something that is really missing. I mean, and it has to do with a political agenda. Well, it could be, you, you could, you could uh, for example, you have uh, people um, I don't know, uh, living in France for, let's say, 20 years, uh, uh, being able to vote on, you know, on the, how do you say, municipal, you know. The, municipal elections. The country yeah. election, well, the, the county or the, well, local elections. And the socialists uh, at a time, you know, long ago, they had the sense that, by doing some sort of actual political gesture, they would address the issue of the past, of the present, and the future in the same, you know, in the same movement. It's not what he's doing. So we have problem facing, you know, um, violence from, you know, the cops in France, uh, discrimination on the basis of, you know, the color of the skin. Uh, for housing, for uh, for you know schooling, so all these issues are not addressed, and I think it's really a problem. Raphael, it was such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for joining us on the LRB podcast. Thank you, Adam. You can read my piece on Raphael's book in the latest issue of the LRB online now, along with Patricia Lockway on Elena Ferrante, Jenny Turner on Octavia Butler, and Thomas Powers on Robert Stone. Thanks for listening. You can find a link to LRB pieces relevant to this episode in the description below.